Thank you, Daniel, and good morning, Christ Central Church. Uh, as Daniel said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, excited, privileged to be with you, to be in God's Word together this morning. Uh, we're continuing in our sermon series entitled On Being the Church. We've been looking at different metaphors that uh, the Bible uses to describe uh, what we, the church, are to look and be like. And this morning we're going to be looking at the church as a temple. And we're going to be in the book of First Peter, uh, chapter 2. So I invite you to stand uh, if you are able, as is our custom for the reading of God's Word. This is First Peter 2. We're going to be reading verses 4 through 10. Peter says, As you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received his mercy. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. And we ask that you would now speak to us through your word, that you would bring your truth to our hearts, and that we would be transformed as we encounter you, the living God. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Years ago, I had the privilege to travel to Europe and, and tour around uh, England and France and Italy. And one of, my, one of the highlights of my travels was to visit some of these magnificent old churches that are scattered throughout these countries and truly breathtaking architecture and just phenomenal artwork throughout. They really don't build them like they used to. Yet as I was visiting these various, chur various churches, I couldn't help but be a little bit disturbed by the fact that so many of these old churches now function entirely as tourist attractions. They no longer serve the function for which they were created, which is a tragedy, right, that these places of worship have been transformed into a place of, of business, of tourism. This morning, we're going to be looking at what it means for us as a church to be a temple, to be a certain type of building that's created for a very specific purpose. And the question I want to begin with this morning is, 
Are we, Christ Central Church, living into the purpose that God created us for? Or are we, like many of the churches in Europe and around the world, looking right on the outside, but maybe not quite in touch with what we were created for? Now, in order to understand what Peter's getting at here, to wrap our minds around this metaphor as church as a temple, we need to understand a little bit of the history of the temple throughout the Bible. And in doing so, we need to answer two key questions. First, why was the temple created? And then secondly, what is the temple's function? Why was it created and what is its function? Now, we're going to cover a good bit of ground this morning in terms of the history, but I hope as we travel through the Scriptures, you will see and and really marvel at how beautifully God's Word is intertwined and interwoven and how we see God's hand in His design from beginning to end. The first thing I want to draw your attention to as we begin this study is two places in the Scriptures where the temple is absent. What we see here is that there is no temple at the beginning and no temple at the end. If you look in your Bible at the bookends, in Genesis and Revelation, this building that is so important, so central to what God is up to is shockingly absent. No temple in the garden, there's no temple in the new heavens and the new earth. But why? The answer is that there's something that's at play, there's something that's present both in the garden and in the new heavens and new earth that makes the temple unnecessary. The word I want for you to keep in mind this morning as we do this history study is presence. Not talking about gifts that you receive on Christmas, but presence meaning the opposite of absence. God's presence. And so we begin in Genesis And what we see here again is that the hallmark of Eden, what made Eden so special, is that God was present with his people. There's uninhibited presence between God and Adam and Eve. They're dwelling together. Again, no temple to be found. Then Genesis 3 happens, sin happens, Adam and Eve disobey God, which causes a whole bunch of problems, but one that I want to highlight today is that this fellowship, this uninhibited fellowship with God is ruined because of sin, because there's no way for a holy and righteous God to dwell with sinful man. Sin makes it impossible for God to enjoy and dwell with his people anymore. So Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden God removes his presence from them, and the question then comes, will that presence ever return? And then we see, as the scriptures continue, that there are clues that it's coming back. There's hope. We see God revealing himself in part to a select group of people, first to Noah, then to Abram, and then to Moses. And God is moving near to his people, but still not even even close to what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden, but presence nonetheless. And the reason this distance still exists is because sin is still present. It's actually spreading like crazy, corrupting everything that it touches. And so because of sin, this barrier between God still exists. But the good news, church, this is the good news, is that the movement of God from beginning to end is towards his people. 
as a little bit of an aside, I often get asked the question, what's the Bible really all about? What's the point? I'll tell you. The story of the whole Bible is God moving mountains to be with you. It's God's movement to rekindle His presence with His people. That's what the Scriptures is all about. Which is a segue into our next chapter of this history lesson, the birth of the temple. Where did it come from? Why was it creative? Listen to what God says in Exodus 25. He says to Moses, he says, And let my people make me a tabernacle, meaning a a mobile temple, a temple on wheels, so that I may dwell in their midst. What we see here is that God is creating the temple to fight against this separation that sin has caused between God and his people, to cultivate his presence again. But it doesn't really work. Or maybe it's better to say that it only works in part. And one of the ways we see that it doesn't work that well is is really revealed in the design of the temple. So I'm going to ask them to put this slide up here for us. What you see here is a picture of the tabernacle, the first temple that God's people created. And what we'll find out later is that when God's people make it to the promised land, to Jerusalem, they they build a, a more permanent, much more grandiose version, but it's the same structure that we see here. And what I want you to see and notice is that what we have here on the outside is what was referred to as the outer courts. Everybody was welcome there, and in that outer part, you experienced God's presence maybe just a little bit. And then if you were special, if you were one of the priests, you got to go into the tent, the inner part. And in that second area, the inner court is where the priests hung out and made sacrifices. And then if you were really, really special, the high priest, you got to go all the way in through that curtain to the Holy of Holies. But you only went once a year, and you went in there to be in the presence of God. Okay, so what we see here is that in, in, in the biggest way possible, this reveals that the sin problem is a really, really, really big problem. This is God's movement towards his people, but his presence is veiled, it's hidden, it's reserved for only one person, but once a year. But again, the good news is that God is moving towards his people. He's continuing to draw near. And what he says, what we see here is that this tabernacle, this temple wasn't good enough. Which brings us to the next chapter in our story found in John chapter 1. What John 1 reveals is that God was longing for even greater nearness with his people. That the temple, the tabernacle was not close enough. No longer was he going to ask his people to come through the temple to meet with them. But God was going to bring the temple to them. This is what John says in verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, all of us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I want to point out here, church, that the word that John uses for dwelt is the Greek verbal equivalent of the, of the word used to describe the tent that we just saw right here in Exodus 25 that God commanded Moses to build. And so what we see here is that John is certainly pointing us back to that. And and you really could translate this line in John 14 as the word became flesh and tented or, or, or tabernacled amongst us. John is saying that God's presence is coming nearer than it ever has been before in Jesus Christ. 
But we have a problem here. For a moment, we have two temples. Jesus in the flesh says he's the new temple. I'm coming to be with you. And we also have this other temple that exists over in Jerusalem. But Jesus clears that up for us. Matthew 27 tells us that at the exact moment that he breathed his last on Calvary, something really strange happened over at the temple. Verse 50 says, And Jesus cries out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I think it's worth noting here that scholars believe that the temple curtain was 30 feet long and 30 feet high. That's important because that makes it clear that there was no person that could have ever ripped this curtain in two. And what that reveals to us is that it was God who was doing this work. God who's the one who tore the temple curtain. But why? What is God doing? And the explanation is that God is declaring in that moment when Jesus, Jesus breathed his last, that this sin problem that was preventing us from enjoying God's presence was dealt with once and for all. Opening the door for us to finally dwell with God again. Brings us to the next chapter of temple history. God puts an end to the brick and mortar temple, opening a door for us to connect with Him through Jesus Christ. But there's a problem. What, what we see here in the scriptures, Acts chapter 1, is that Jesus opens up this door and then all of a sudden He's gone. The disciples are enjoying His presence, just getting used to the fact that he raised from the dead and then he ascends into heaven and they're sitting there scratching their heads. But thank goodness for Acts chapter 2 and here God changes the equation dramatically. Because Jesus has dealt with the sin problem, now we have access to the Father which is the essence of what Pentecost is all about. God chooses to then bring his Holy Spirit to bring his presence closer than ever before. No longer is the temple something that we go to, but God comes and dwells inside of us. It does not get any closer than that. God's nearness on steroids, which is why Paul in turn says in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you, those of you who believe in Jesus Christ, you are a temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells inside you. By the indwelling of Spirit, we become temples, a place where God's presence dwells. How awesome is that? Do you see how far we've come? One man once a year and through the work of Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit comes and resides inside of you and me. But there's a catch. Which brings us now finally to 1 Peter chapter 2. Look again with me starting at verse 4. Peter says, As you come to Jesus who was a living stone Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. A new kind of temple. Peter says that God's design, the wise master builder that he is, is to take all these individual temples, to take you and me, and to stack them on top of one another. And that when we are stacked together, we create a new temple, a spiritual house that is fit for God to dwell Meaning that, church, as we gather in this place, all of our different stories, all of our different experiences piled on top of each other, cemented together, in that way, God meets us. That in that place, God's presence is uniquely felt. 
There's a flip side to that, I think, that needs to be stated, especially in our uniquely individualized Western society who struggles with these ideas. Peter is saying that although the Holy Spirit certainly dwells inside of you, that there is a nearness to God that you cannot experience apart from being stacked on top of each other. Unless we are committed to being in relationship, committed to this body together. After I walked away from God in high school, God drew me back to himself late in college. And early in that season of walking with Jesus, I really embraced this kind of me and Jesus rogue Christian way of living. I would attend church from time to time, was kind of nominally evolved in, in some campus ministry. But I had my Bible, and there was some really good online teaching that I was kind of chewing on. So I felt like I was pretty good. I was good to go. Unfortunately, though, kind of in that journey, my relationship with Jesus started to get kind of stale. Uh, sins that had not been a struggle for quite some time started to rear their ugly heads. And I just didn't know what to do or where to turn. Kind of felt like I was in the outer courts. I was, I was kind of near to God, but I uh, didn't know really where to find him, or connect with him in a meaningful way. You want to know what saved me? St. Paul's Presbyterian Church. It's a little church of about 150 people on a good Sunday, faithfully gathering in downtown Atlanta, Georgia, every Sunday morning. And when I went there on Sundays... I began to experience God's presence in a way that I never had before. Through singing, through sharing life with other believers, through the preaching, through the table. For Central, when we gather here, when we stack ourselves on top of one another, we create a spiritual house that God delights uniquely to dwell in. He promises to meet you here. I just want to sit in that for a moment because I think that should have a profound impact on the way that we all come into this place. It should create a sense of awe and anticipation that when we gather here, we're actually meeting with the God of the universe in his temple. And I hope that as that lands more and more, that will transform the way you come into this place. We are the temple together place where God delights to dwell. So that's why the temple was created. It's a place for God's presence. But what then is the function of the temple? What are we supposed to be doing? We know God is here, but what are we supposed to be doing when we come to this place? Peter answers the question in verse verse 5. He says that the work that you are to do in this place is as a priesthood offer spiritual sacrifices to God. That's what we saw in the temple, is in those inner courts, there was this group of people, the priests, that over and over, day and night, 365 days a year, they offered sacrifices to God, which makes sense, right? Because sacrifices are the God-ordained means to deal with this sin problem prior to Christ's coming. And the problem is the people of God, like we often do, they kind of turn that into a formula, and as a result, they missed the point. They began to see the temple as a factory, a factory that produces God's presence. If you input the right things, some grain here, some goat, 
some goats here, a few bulls, and then you can manufacture God's presence. What the scriptures reveal is to view the temple that way is to completely miss what God was after. See, the point of sacrifices is not to manufacture God's presence, but to communicate one's desire for God's presence to God. That's the heart of the sacrifice. We call this worship. Clearly, God did not need the people's grain or their goats. He's God. He's doing just fine. But he longs for something from us, not our grain, not our goats, but our hearts. He's after your hearts. Listen to how God pleads for the people's hearts and not their stuff in Psalm 50. He said, hear, O my people, and I will speak. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. You're doing all the right things. But I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. You're missing the point. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And he says, no. He says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God doesn't desire our sacrifice. He desires our worship. He doesn't want your stuff. He wants you. All of you. Do you see God's beautiful design? For us to be the temple as the church means that we are a place where God delights to dwell and our job is to fill this place with worship. That's what we do here. I want to leave you with three points of application as we kind of wrap our minds here in closing around this idea of the church as a temple. Hopefully, these will guide you as you come into this place each week. First, come here to worship, not sacrifice. How easy it is to come here because it's something that we're supposed to do. So we can check off our box of Sunday worship. And we come in here and we go through the motions, we sing a few songs, we pass the plate, we drink some juice and that nasty wafer, and then we call it a day. God is not interested in that. To do that is, the offer, is to offer the kind of sacrifice that God rebukes. Now, I know some of us hear the word rebuke and we cringe, but, but this is not a harsh or angry rebuke. It's the rebuke of a loving father who wants more for his child. God wants more for you. He wants you to come to this place longing to dwell and encounter the living God, to meet with him and enjoy his presence. So resist the urge of going through the motions. Coming here expecting to meet and enjoy the God of the universe. Second, come here to worship, not be entertained. Neil Postman wrote a, a, a great book back in 1985 entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death. Uh, really a prophetic work in many ways. Unpacking the dangers of an entertainment-driven society. And there's no question in that entertainment-driven Society has made its way into the church. But the result is that we live in a culture where every task that we do exists for our own personal fulfillment. We can't help but look for what's in it for me. 
How is this thing going to satisfy me today? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not anti-warm fuzzies in church. I really hope that when you come here, it feels good. I often am moved to tears on Sunday morning because of how amazed I am, how, how touched I am by God's love for me and for others. But that's not why we're here. That's not why we come. We don't come to church for the warm fuzzies. We come because we want to worship. To come for the warm fuzzies is to make worship about me. And our worship is about God. We come here not to be entertained, but to give God the glory that he alone is due. Third, come here to worship, not to serve. I said that. I really did. And I know Meredith and Jordan are kind of squirming right now, and they're worried you're going to pull your name off the volunteer roster, and it's okay. Hear me out. I have no beef with service, but as a Christian, we have to know that that is not our primary vocation. We have a saying here at Christ Central, we talk about being in Durham for Durham. It's a wonderful idea. It's a wonderful saying, and it's on a lot of our merchandise. But it it needs a little bit of a qualifier, I think. Why are we in Durham for Durham? Is it because we're just really good people who care deeply about the world around us? Not exactly. I I think that as Christians, we have to embrace the meta-narrative We have to recognize the grand story that we are a part of. Remember how I said at the beginning that the temple is shockingly absent both in the garden and in the new heavens and new earth? The reasons why is because in both places the world is actually as it should be. Both in the garden and both in heaven, the earth is Habakkuk 2, filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. That's what we long for most above all else, church, is that the whole world would be filled with God's glory, that all people, all creation would be worshiping the one true God. Did you know if our city was filled with worship that there would be no homelessness, there would be no orphans, there would be no racial injustice, no poverty, that everything that is broken would be made whole? And so it's not that we are not about service, but our service exists ultimately to that end. We serve so that worship will happen, so that the world will be as it should be. Listen to how John Piper says it. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists because worship doesn't. When the age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations, to bring the world into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. Church, we come here and that's why we scream it from the mountains. We celebrate that he is God. And that is the thing that we will do for all creation, for all time. We will worship the one true God. And we long for the whole world to join in with us. That is our deepest longing, our greatest hope. So I hope that those thoughts will guide you and instruct you as you come into this place. Come not to sacrifice, not to be entertained, not to serve, but to enjoy God's presence and to respond in worship.
during COVID, I got to fulfill one of my bucket list items. I'm kind of obsessed with the chef, Thomas Keller, and through a bizarre set of circumstances, I got to visit one of his restaurants. Um, and I could go on and on about how magical it was. If you want to talk to me afterwards, I'd love to talk to you. So, so perfect. Uh, but towards the ends of this, of this magnificent meal, I was so filled with gratitude that I, I, I asked our, our waitress, you know, does Thomas Keller ever even come into the restaurant anymore? Because I've just got to tell him how, how thankful I am for this meal. Because I know Thomas wanted to hear from me. Uh, he really cared. But to my astonishment, the waitress said, yeah, Thomas just got here. He'd love to come by the table. And when he came by the table, I was like a teenage girl at a Backstreet Boys concert. It was so awesome. <laughs> I just could not get my words out. I was stumbling over. My, I was just so excited. But it was just such a gift to be with this person who was responsible for the mes- best meal I'm sure I will ever have. Church, when we come into this place, we're not coming to visit some famous chef, some celebrity We come here and we meet the God of the universe. He chooses to dwell with us, his people. And we don't celebrate some delicious meal. We celebrate what the scriptures say, what verse 9 says, that he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What an incredible thing to celebrate that our God has done for us. And for a moment, a little over an hour, depending on how long-winded we are, we, we live into the reality of what we were created for, what, what we will con- be consumed with for all eternity, eternity. We worship and enjoy the one true God. My hope, my prayer is that would be so for you, for me, that each and every week that we would enjoy this foretaste of what is to come. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess, I confess that it, it, it's so easy to come here for a lot of different reasons. We come to this place because we've feel like we're supposed to, we're kind of checking a box. We come here hoping to get entertained. We might get some warm fuzzies, a, a good feeling out of the service. And Father, we're so grateful that you're gracious and kind with us in our mixed motives, all the funky reasons why we come to your temple. Um, Father, we ask that you would refine us that you would help us to see what it means to be the temple, that as we are stacked together on top of one another, that we create a place where you delight to show up. And that as we come here and we meet you, God, when we give you what you alone are worthy of, which is our utmost adoration, affection, and worship, would it be all about you, God? Would we celebrate you and give you praise and, and join with the heavenly chorus in doing so? God, would you help us to get that practice in for that which we will do for all of eternity as we enjoy this beautiful foretaste in the moment. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.